Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. All right. Uh, so good to be with you today. We're greeting all of you who are worshiping with us online. We're so glad uh, you're with us today. I'm Chip Freed, the lead teaching pastor here at Garfield Memorial Church. We're glad to be gathered in the building. We're glad to be gathered around the world. Um, we're in our teaching series this Lent and Easter as we make our way just in two weeks to the tomb that is empty, right? They can't even find it. Pastor Lori's been with me, and Terry, we've, we've traveled the Holy Lands. They can't find Jesus' tomb. They don't know where it is. You know why? Because they venerated every tomb in ancient, you know where uh, uh, Muhammad's tomb is, you know where Buddha's tomb is, you know where uh, Paul the Apostle's tomb is. You know tombs. I mean, I, I go uh, visit my mom and my dad and my sister's grave sites, right? They can't find Jesus' tomb. You know Why? He wasn't in it very long. They didn't have time to put flowers up and all that. We, we, we serve a risen Savior. Hallelujah. Praise God, man. Indescribable. Uncomparable. I, I love that song. Because, because you, you, words defy who our God is. So we've been preaching Easter, the empty tomb, on the margins. Easter that shows up on the margins of our lives. Easter shows up in the unlikely places. If we're honest, Easter sometimes shows up when we don't want it, when we've rejected God. I'm your, one of your pastors here, and I've shared my story. I cut a deal with God when my 20s. I said, I'll leave you alone if you'll do the same for me. How many of you know Easter says God doesn't keep those bargains? And he showed back up in my life. I heard a sermon one time that said Jesus just keeps hanging around. And, and the preacher was talking about after, after Easter, Jesus just kept showing up. He walked through locked doors. He, he walked to disciples on the road to Emmaus who were broken. I think I'm preaching my Easter sermon already. I, I got a little fired up at our 9 o'clock service today. But he just keeps hanging around. And maybe he's been hanging around in your life. And maybe you came in here today or you're watching online and... You kind of wish he wouldn't hang around in some of your places. But guess what? He's there too. There's no corner of your life that Jesus doesn't cover. There's no aspect of your existence that Jesus doesn't know. There's no thought of your mind. Fantasy or uh, debilitating thing that Jesus doesn't handle. He just keeps hanging around in your life. And he goes to the margins of our life. And so today, you heard Tanisha read for us a story of this blind person. Mark tells us his name, that it was Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. 
Why does Mark do that? Because Mark is the earliest gospel writer, and Mark usually gives names because the people are still alive. And it's eyewitness testimony. How many of you know the gospels are not history books? They're not biographies of Jesus. If they are, they stink because they left out like 30 years of his life. Their testimonies are saying, this is the son of God. This is God with us. And Mark says, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, he's still alive. His family's still alive. Go talk to him if you don't believe what I'm telling you is true. But Mark still says he's the blind beggar. And Luke tells us, we've been watching Luke uh, through this story, people who are on the margins, people who are overlooked, People who, uh, you know, we don't see. I was sharing at the first service, I was called to be a preacher back in 1998 in San Francisco. We were talking about the Methodist Church does great uh, ministry to people in the cities. And here we were in our ties and our, you know, wonderful uh, ordination, and we're walking across homeless people to go to these seminars talking about how great we do ministry. And I, I was in one, and I just broke down and said, why don't we get the heck out of this conference room and go out where Jesus is? And, and that's, that's where this blind person is, on the margins. You ever read a book? Pastor Terry and I share a Kindle together. She loves Kindle. I hate it. The only time I read Kindle is when I can't turn the lights on in my house, right? Because I like the smell of a book. But guess what? In a book or a document, do you know there's margins? We don't pay attention to them, do we? Microsoft Word has six settings for margins. And they have another one that says, customize your margins, which are, means it's indefinite. Margins are there. They don't promote the plot. They don't tell the story. They're just there. Our world, our society has margins. And guess what? They're very occupied. There's a lot of people that live there. Maybe you do. Maybe you're not honest. You say, well, Chip, I'm not homeless. Right. Well, that's, I'm not blind Bartimaeus by the side of the road. Okay. But maybe there's some margins in your life that you occupy that you're not honest about. Pastor Terry and I, when we started this series, we, we had a, ser- a, a quote by John Ortberg that just ruined us. And Pastor Terry mentioned it on Ash Wednesday, but if you weren't here, the the quote goes this way. Prayer is not a place to be good. Prayer is a place to be honest. Mercy. Mercy, Lord. That's what Bartimaeus' prayer is. So I've got some leaders of our church up here. You all know Pastor Scott. We're the pastor team. But Talia Seals is our church council chair now, which means if we had a board of elders or a board of deacons, she's the head honcho. Uh, Kyle and Michelle Jefferson are part of our vision team and our church council. Uh, We've got some amazing young leaders that are going to make sure this church goes way into the future after me. Somebody say amen. Amen. 
Amen, man. We're, we're, we're going to take this mantle, this Revelation 7-9 church, into the future. This is not God's I, you know, past tense. This is God's future tense idea. This is what God is doing. The arc of the moral universe, Dr. Martin Luther King used to say, bends toward justice. Well, guess what? If you read your Bible, the arc of the church's universe bends towards every tongue, tribe, and nation coming before the throne. And we're going to do everything we can to live that out on earth as it is in heaven to fulfill Jesus' prayer. But they're going to share with us from Tiffany, from David, from Jennifer, from Peter. People that won't show up on the demographic I listed of the homeless in San Francisco or the blind person by the side of the road, but maybe they'll tell your story. Maybe you'll hear echoes of it. So there's a pastor named Rick McKinley. Uh, pastor Terry and I know of him. We've not met him. He's in Portland. But they have a church that really focuses on non-church people. And when folk come in who are least likely to be in church, he asks them to write a paper, like a letter, a postcard. Uh, like, who are you? What's going on in your life? And then if they end up being baptized, which, hey, we are having baptism Sunday, the Sunday after Easter. We already have five folks that have stepped forward to say they're going to be baptized or reaffirmed. If you are out there online, if you're here and you're thinking, you know, maybe after today, I want to be baptized. I want to reaffirm my baptism. I want to recommit. Would you come talk to us or just hit uh, info at garfieldchurch.org? Um, we ba- the last baptism service, I baptized a 13-year-old whose birthday present was to be baptized, and she's never been to our facility. She, she worships with us two hours away and has been with us since March of 2020. The first time she, I met her face-to-face was in that baptismal pool. Don't, you know, miracles happen here. So if you're feeling that today, please let us know because we're going to celebrate uh, that time of baptism together. But I want you to hear the cries of people by the side of the road. These leaders are going to read some of those letters before and after, you know, that before they met Christ and at the end of this message, after they met met Christ. So Talia's going to start us off. From Tiffany, age 31. I don't usually tell anybody these kinds of things. I don't like being vulnerable. I'm seeing a counselor right now. Many people see counselors. It just makes me feel like I'm not normal, like something is wrong with me. When I was nine years old, I was molested by a family member. At the time, I really didn't understand what was happening, but I knew it wasn't normal. I was too scared to tell anyone, and because he was a family member, I felt like somehow my mom and dad allowed it to happen. Looking back, I can see that wasn't true, but at the time, I didn't know any better. The abuse continued until I was 12, and I told my mom what was happening. She cried for so long and so loud. I realized then the gravity of what happened to me. So the family member was confronted by my dad, and I've never seen him since. But we weren't a family that really dealt with problems thoroughly. I was relieved it was finally over, 
that I just kind of sort of tucked the whole thing in the back of my head and tried to forget it ever happened. Now that I'm older, I realize I can't do that. I've never been able to scrub the sick feeling off my soul that was put there through the abuse. So I just go through life feeling that if anyone ever knew who I was on the inside, that they would simply reject me. Every relationship I've ever had since then has been shallow. I can't give myself to anyone, not emotionally anyway. I can have sexual relationship, but that's as far as it goes. For some reason, trusting men with my body isn't a big deal. I just can't trust them with my heart. I don't want to be single forever, but I don't seem to be able to get past it. I think it may all stem from the fact that I hate myself. I just don't like me. I'm kind of angry with God. Why did he let it happen to me? He couldn't really love me. That's what I think. And I don't think God has much to say of any real significance. I do hope, but not a lot, but I do. I hope one day I can be honest with someone about my life and about what happened to me, even the things that I've done. And I hope that person can love me anyway. From David, age 24. I'm still in college. It's my fourth college. And I've changed my major about a hundred times. I see friends moving on to careers and becoming successful. But I'm still here. Lagging behind the pack. And not even sure I want to catch up. I work just like they work. I just don't make as much money. I serve coffee for a well-known franchise. The truth is, I don't even think I'm going to stay in school. What's the point? For the most part, my friends, even my friends who graduated, are still working simple jobs. I never knew my dad. He left when I was around three. My mom told me where he was living in another state, but I've never tried to get in touch with him. I don't really care, I guess. I know this has affected me somehow, but I just kind of avoid thinking about it. My mom was great. She did all she could to fill his shoes. I just kind of wish I had a man in my life to prepare me for this whole deal of growing up. Seems like life is passing me by. You wake up, you're still having to live with a bunch of people to make rent. I'm educated. I've taken philosophy, which taught me that life is meaningful only if you create meaning for yourself. I've taken biology, which taught me that I evolved by chance out of the primordial pond. I've taken business courses, which assumed my goal in life was to make money. A mistaken proposition for this particular coffee bistro. Not once... In all of my education, has anyone asked the question, why are you here? That would have been a great class. Why am I here? I guess that's the question I've been waiting for someone to answer. 
if I ever buy into the fact that I am just an evolutionary chance, I'm afraid I'm just going to off myself one day. I mean, what's the point? But alas, if I join the rat race and buy into the accumulation of cash as the meaning of life, then I'm just going to die on the inside. I can't wake up, kiss my wife on the cheek, climb into a Lexus, and drive off to throw elbows in the corporate boxing ring. I want something that's true and can speak to the growing emptiness that the world seems to think I don't notice. I guess I just wish I was something so I didn't have to become something. From Jennifer, age 29. I grew up homeless. Not on the streets or anything like that. I just didn't personally know the same meaning of home that I saw on TV. My mom and dad got divorced when I was in fourth grade. When I was a kid, home made me feel safe. It was the place I could come to when I had a fight with my friends or when kids made fun of me at school and then everything would be okay. I was safe again. The world out there was was scary and mean at times but home was the place where everything would be okay. It was a haven to protect you. It was peace. Then one day, all that was gone. My dad moved into our house with some lady who would become my stepmom, and then mom and I moved out and into an apartment. I had to change schools, and I only saw dad a couple times a month. All of a sudden, at nine years old, I felt like all the scary stuff in the world had come crashing through the windows of my house like a hurricane. Mom and I were walking around with shards of glass sticking out of our hearts, and Dad was missing. I remember crying a lot, wanting it all to go back to normal. I so missed Dad and Mom being together. I thought the divorce was my fault for a long time. I think I kind of still do. If I could have kept them together, I could have kept my world from crashing down. Before the divorce, home had been the one thing in the world that seemed right. But all that goodness turned out to be an illusion. It wasn't real. Now, I don't think home can really exist. It can't be a real thing, at least for most people. And that's so sad. And God seems about as far away to me as those warm holidays at home before the divorce. I don't see God as really relevant to me. I want the safety of life in that illusion of home, not some religious answer for it. I don't want the sterile hallways of a church. I want to go back home. I don't tell a lot of people about it, but it's true. I still feel homeless. From Peter, age 55. I'm pretty successful. I've made a lot of money, and I have a lot of things. 
don't get me wrong, I'm no Bill Gates, but I live pretty comfortably. My kids, Tim and Melissa, are out of the house now. Tim's in college, and Melissa graduated last year, and she's engaged now. I wish I were tighter with my kids. I wasn't around that much when they were growing up. I had to travel, and we ended up moving a lot with the company. I always wanted just to give them the stuff I never had, you know. Working was my way of loving them. My wife Linda and I just moved into a new home. It's the best house we've ever owned. It's right on a golf course, so it gives me plenty of excuse to work on my short game. Lately, though, I've been thinking a lot at night. I can't seem to sleep, so I started asking these questions. They're questions that have popped back into my mind from time to time, but I always manage to push them back down into their hole. They're questions that critique everything I've been about over the last 30 years. Why don't your kids like you? Who do you really know that you could call a friend? If all of your toys got taken away, who are you? I hate these questions. I just can't seem to make them go away. And worse, I don't have answers for them. I have all this stuff, but what I do not have are relationships. Not the ones that are deep anyway. Sometimes at night I just lay there and my whole life feels like I open all the presents on Christmas morning and now I'm bored and lonely again. I feel guilty for not being there for my kids. I also feel a little bit ripped off. I feel ripped off that all the things I've been told my whole life were the most important to have ended up, in fact, stealing the things that were, in fact, most important to me. Now I sit here and wonder who the hell I am. Can you hear them? You hear the voices from the margins? They may not look like blind Bartimaeus by the side of the road, but you know those voices. I prayed with these folks on Tuesday, and Kyle said to me, those voices are going to be in church on Sunday. They're here. They're all of us. There's, there's, there's an aching inside of us sometimes. Is this all there is? The big questions, right? David didn't get the class in Big Questions 101. And oftentimes, we suppress it. The crowd said what? Shut up. Don't, don't give your real self out there. When I first came here to Garfield uh, 19 years ago, my gosh, it, some, I didn't know anybody would put up with me 19 years other than my wife. Um, but I got here. You guys didn't even laugh at that. Um, <laughs> kind of makes me think, yeah, we didn't think so either. Anyhow, but when I got here, I, I'm a, what's called a confessional preacher, if you haven't noticed. I, I don't try to be an expert in things I don't know about. I don't just quote three scholars in a, in a poem. I, I, I talk about life. I talk about our life. And when I got here, I would talk about the times that my wife and I were fighting in the car on the way to church. I'd talk about issues in our family and how we were calling upon Jesus to deal with it. And I got to tell you, especially at our nine o'clock service, people would go up to Terry after and go, are you okay? Like, is that okay? Like, you know. Because I was raised in a home that said, you know, if it happens in the house, it, you, know, you were raised there too, weren't you? 
You know, and, and, and that's where we're, we weren't taught to be vulnerable. We weren't taught to, taught to talk about what really aches our hearts. And let, let me just say this to you. If you're not comfortable talking it with each other, talk about it with God. He knows about it anyways. If you read the Psalms, David's own son tried to kill him. He tried to abdicate the throne. And David cries out, hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I cry out to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. We got to be honest. We, when we're on the margins in our lives and our hearts, if you can't be honest with one another and we pray that you can be at Garfield Memorial Church, you're not going to do that at the big meeting. You're going to do it in some kind of small group. But I pray you would get into a small group. We like to say here, if you're not in a group, you're not in the church. Get in some people that you can trust because our core values are safety and authenticity. I got an email one time from a Hindu couple that were worshiping with us over at South Euclid and they got kind of a broken English, you know, email and said to me, hey, you know, we're loving everything here and we come to the kids club and we come to meals and is it okay for us to participate because we're actually Hindu and I said, we built this church for you. We need to be in a place where we're safe, where we can share the cries of our hearts. And not worry, there's a crowd that's going to say, shh, Bartimaeus, don't do that. It's not appropriate, right? We're, we're, we're not going to be those kind of people, but we're going to listen to the cries of Tiffany and David and Jennifer and Peter and put your name in the story. I put mine in there. We're so afraid to be vulnerable, we're so afraid. But I will tell you this, when I had been here six months and preaching the way I do, not that I, that's anything to write home about, and if you're online, tune in next week. That's why I got uh, four preachers to share the message with me. I know I'm not all that in a bag of Doritos. But the truth was, that at our early service, I had been preaching six months the way I do, and there was a man that who's uh, renowned in the business arena. I won't mention his name. But he came through the line like you do every Sunday. Hey, thank you, thank you. You know, shake your hands. But after everybody was through, he was back again. And he was weeping. And I said, are you okay? And he said to me, you are so honest about your own faults that I can no longer hide from mine. See, when we're honest... When we're like Bartimaeus, Lord, have mercy. God, stand still. Do you notice that? Matthew, Mark, Luke all tell this story. I said that last week with Legion, that when they all tell the story, you got to listen. It's important. They all tell this story. And every one of them said when the blind man person cried out, blind woman, blind man, whatever, cried out, Jesus stopped. See, I grew up, well, I grew up in a church that was actually the frozen chosen. We didn't say anything. We sat there like this, you know. If, when we talked in church, if we whispered, my mom would hit us in the head with a hymnal. So some of you know that church, right? You've been there. 
Um, but then I went to the historical black church where I came to Christ. Man, we, we could let it out. We, we could talk. We could, you know, throw our hands up in the air and everything else. But we used to sing a song in that church, uh, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others you are calling, please don't pass me by. It's from this thing. And we go, Savior, Savior. Some of you know it. Hear my humble cry. And the basses would go, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, please don't pass me by. That wasn't bad. You can, you can give it up a little bit. No, I'm kidding. But no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm so narcissist. That was terrible. But the point is this. I realized that song was all wrong. It doesn't take that. You don't have to sing four choruses of pass me not. You give your honest cry, Lord have mercy. He stops. He stops. He stands still. He said, one of my kids is hurting. Do you know you have a God that if you're thirsty at three o'clock in the morning, he's a dad, he's a mom that gets out of the bed that brings you a cup of water. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. The hairs on your head are numbered, not counted. That means when you comb your hair, if hair number 1,312 falls out, he knows. God is that kind of God. He stands still. He comes to a, to a moment. I preach this at a dear sister's funeral. If you read Acts chapter 6, when Stephen is stoned for his faith, he's stoned for his faith. He's the first martyr that preached Jesus in the, in the, in the world, killed him, including Paul, who became the apostle. That's why I said, you ever, ever wanted to kill Christians? I do. Like you want to choke them? Paul did. And then he became one. Explain that. And Stephen was crying out as he was stoned. He was crying out to Jesus, have mercy. And guess what? Every testimony says he looked up and he see, I see the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Do you know, read your Bible. Every testimony about Jesus says he is sitting at the right hand of God. But only at that moment when Stephen saw him, he was standing at the right hand of God. That means when you say have mercy, Jesus gets up. He gets up from his seat and he pays attention. He cares for us. Cast all your anxiety upon him, Peter said. And Peter had a lot of anxiety, like me. And he said, cast all of it on him because he cares for you. He cares. And when we're honest, Jesus stands up. When Tiffany told her story, when David told his story, when Jennifer told her story, when Peter told his story, diverse as it may be, Jesus stood up. And in two minutes, you're going to hear their testimony after they encountered Jesus. He stood up. And, and, he, and, and Jesus said, your faith, your faith has made you well. What faith? I mean, what faith, really? What was the faith? Have mercy. It wasn't the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't the Lord's Prayer. It wasn't the Roman Road. It wasn't the Sinner's Prayer. It wasn't, Lord, all these sins over here I do not commit anymore. Have mercy! And Jesus said, that's the faith I'm looking for. That's honest faith. That's accountable faith. That's real faith. 
before I let them share their after stories, I will say Jesus told a parable one time about a Pharisee, Chip, and a tax collector that went into the temple to pray. And I'm going to contemporize it. Chip went into the temple to pray, and here's how I prayed. Hey, Lord, I'm the pastor of Garfield Memorial Church. This is a church with national influence. It's one of the most multi-ethnic churches in the country, and we're doing great things. And hey, Lord, in case you forgot, I left the corporate arena. I, I let my wife and my family, we left all that life. I was a CEO, and we went to serve you, Lord, and we're doing good things, and I'm tithing, and I'm working up for you, and I'm doing all these things. And I'm not like that Ponzi scam artist down here who's in the temple praying. Terry and I are above that. And Jesus said, the Ponzi scam artist down there said, Lord, I know I've done some bad stuff. I know I've hurt people. I know I've gained at their loss. And all I'm asking you is have mercy. Mercy, mercy. You know what Jesus said in that parable? Chip, your, your prayer was not heard. But that brother's prayer, he's going home to his father, justified. Mercy, mercy from the margins. Just say that with me. Mercy from the margins. Listen to their, their testimonies after they met Jesus. Tiffany, after meeting Jesus. I am always amazed at how God has met me in the deepest parts of me, parts I didn't even know were there. When I first started dealing with the fact that I was abused, I assumed that God couldn't care less about me. Now, but now, I realize that God has loved me the whole time. The abuse taught me that I was worthless, but Christ has taught me that I am precious to him. The greatest thing is that in his love, I could really forgive the person who hurt me and move on. Moving on is a daily thing for me. I can't say that it's cut and dried or that the pain is gone forever, but it's different now. I now know how much God loves me, and I don't have to ignore the pain. I can go to the Father as his daughter, and he will comfort me in that pain. I'm still single, but I don't give myself away to guys anymore. I see now that the love I was looking for can only be found in Jesus. I'm a grateful daughter who's just trying to stay in my father's love. David, after meeting Jesus. Coming to Jesus has been pretty wild. Since knowing him, I've realized there's some things that I've kind of avoided before. I guess not having a dad was a pretty major deal for me. I stuffed it for most of my life, but the effects were there. For one thing, I could never seem to finish anything. I guess I was really scared of failing. But accepting God as my father has made a big impact on my life. 
Sometimes I find myself still wanting my real dad to have a relationship with me. But then I realize that that's like telling God he's second best. And I don't normally wake up feeling like I'm God's son. I lived with believing I was alone for so long that it's what comes naturally to me. But when I take time to really focus on what I believe, it all lines up. I might even go ahead and finish college. I just want to be able to say that I did it. I'm still kind of a flake, but God's kicking my tail on that a bit. The truth is, I do feel accepted. I know God is there, and he's happy to have me as his son. And that's pretty cool. From Jennifer, after encountering Jesus. Now that Jesus is in my life, I really see things differently. I used to think that if my parents had never gotten divorced, then my life would have been perfect. I know now that is not the case. The thing I was really longing for was the love and security of my Heavenly Father. And it has made all the difference. I don't cling to thoughts of what should have been anymore. Instead, I focus on what is and will be as I live in the love of Jesus. Christmas and family gatherings are weird and can still dredge up the old pain. At those times, I am tempted to run back into the place where I feel sorry for myself. But that's not where life is for me now. Now, life is in Christ and his love, and knowing that the truest meaning of home is with God in my heart. In that place, I know I will not fall apart, and God is not going to leave. I am going to keep believing and living in that love. Peter, after he encountered Jesus. Jesus woke me up to some pretty tough things in my life. I was trying to follow the world's formula for success, and uh, I almost lost my kids in the process. I was running around after money and things to make me happy, to give my life meaning, when the whole time the really important things were right there in front of me. When I gave myself to Jesus, I had to learn what life was really all about. I wish I could say that I have it all wired, but I don't. Being a follower of Christ is not as simple as closing a business deal. It's a relationship, and I had closed off that part of myself a long time ago. But Jesus wasn't buying that. He gradually softened my heart until I was able to ask my kids to forgive me for not being there for them. We have a ways to go in reestablishing a trusting relationship, but now I'm able to engage them and let them know what they mean to me, what they truly mean to me.
I wish I had met Jesus when I was younger. Maybe things would have been different. But I have to trust that his timing is perfect. His timing is always perfect. I really do believe that Jesus is the meaning of life. That moves me to love and worship him above everything else. He knows me much better than I even know myself, and I'm learning to trust him with the biggest issues of my life. One step at a time, one day at a time, left foot, right foot, I'm starting to get it. One thing for sure, I am not going back to where I was. This is too great to give up. Did you hear them? Give it up for these four preachers today, man. I'm lazy, I'm lazy, I'm lazy. I drafted leaders of our church to preach for me. I got to tell you, before I walked in this morning to Mosaic, I had somebody run down the hall from Heritage and grab me and said, that was the most impactful thing I've ever heard. And I said, that's because I only preached 15 minutes. No. (laughs) But seriously, we hear these voices, don't we? Be honest. Be honest. You've cried something like that somewhere along your journey. And here's the good news. Mercy, Lord. Mercy. Lord, have mercy. Now, last thing I'm sitting down. The crowd. The crowd. In the Bible, the crowd is always us. It's the church. The crowd that says, Hosanna next week, right? Palm Sunday. Hosanna, Jesus comes in. By Friday, they were shouting, crucify him. Crowds are fickle. Only Luke, only Luke tells us that the crowd says what they say in Matthew and Mark. Shut up, Bartimaeus. Shut up. Don't be vulnerable. Don't share your business, right? That's like we go to book studies and read the book, but don't share our hearts, right? Don't do that. But only in Luke it says that after Bartimaeus cried again, the crowd brought him to Jesus. Which crowd are we going to be, friends? Thank you. Thank you, my sister. Shout, be quiet, or bring him to Jesus. That's our challenge. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for these testimonies, real-life testimonies. We don't know Tiffany. We don't know David. We don't know Jennifer. We don't know Peter personally, but they are in our family, and we're in theirs. Give us the courage like them, like the blind woman, man sitting by the roadside to tell you what you really want to hear, what you already know, which is the prayers of our hearts. We offer them up now, Lord, as we get ready to stand and sing about you. We do it saying, God, we're safe with you. We don't need to sing four choruses to get you to stand still. We just need to say mercy, mercy, mercy. Let all of us say that, mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.